Right, I think that is recording now. Um, perfect. So it's 1 p.m. Um, on Wednesday, the 11th of Jan 2023. Happy New Year, everyone, um, which means it's time for our next Fresh Insights webinar, which is brought to you by the Graduate Recruiters Network. Um, so welcome, everyone. It's lovely to see you all. Um, before we begin, uh, we kindly ask if it's OK if everyone um, ensures they're on mute um, just so there's no distractions. Um, and more than happy if everyone wants to keep the cameras on. So it's nice to see everyone. Um, so, some of you might not know me, so my name's Katie, um, I'm an early talent partner within the recruitment solutions team at GRB, um, I've been so for about four years now. Um, to give you a bit of a background, um, I work in partnership with lots of different companies um, working on their sort of large attraction projects or large recruitment projects, um, providing them with outsourced solutions for their recruitment process. Um, so my team is slightly different to traditional recruitment um, as we act more as a sort of extension to their team um, and support with anything from attraction to sort of diversity reviews, material design, etc. The GRB group consists of several divisions, uh, which I'll introduce you to for those of you that are new today. Um, I have seen some familiar faces. Um, so we have Graduate Recruitment Bureau, um, and we specialise in placing graduates into their first and second roles. Um, and we have teams across sales, IT, engineering, marketing, consultancy, finance and more. Um, as well as the recruitment solutions division that I work in, um, alongside Cortex and Metrica, who serve our clients who are looking for graduates with more than three to four years experience. Um, so we have Cortex specialising in the IT side of things um, and Metrica on the analytics side of things. Now, Graduate Mentor is a new platform we have launched in August 2020 to mitigate the efforts of the pandemic. Um, especially for students and graduates um, from un, um, underrepresented groups. Um, and we have a large range of mentors who serve us on that platform, who actually volunteer their time for free. Um, we have organisations such as Facebook, Google, um, to name a few. Um, so if you do want to get involved in that, please do get in touch um, to mentor a potential graduate. So bit of background on Graduate Recruiters Network, um, again, for the benefit of our new members today. Um, so GRM was set up back in 2009, um, originally to serve our clients, um, typically from sort of HR advisor, HR um, sort of business partner roles, um, with the idea of sort of discussing um, hot topics um, and early talent marketplace um, news and just sort of sharing best practice. Um, it's really, really beneficial um, for anyone who's working in the industry um, and just wants sort of advice and just to pick up new ideas. Um, membership has grown considerably over the last few years. Um, so since 2009, um, we have about 3,400 members. Um, it is invitation only, as some of you know. Um, so we only invite people sort of who are in-house um, sort of HR and recruiters. Um, as you know, we have lots of different events. We have webinars like today, special events, um, lunches, quarterly newsletters, etc. So it's really beneficial to be part of this. Um, and I think it's extra benefits for uh, VIP members uh, for just £25 a month. So who is in the room today? So we've actually created a word cloud of all of the job titles who are in the room today. Um, and you all represent a really large range of industries and roles, which is really good to see. Um, so we've got companies such as Amazon, um, AstraZeneca, Grant Thornton, etc. So it's really good to see you all. So agenda wise, um, I will pass things over in a moment to today's speaker, Charlie Ball, who will be talking about um, early talent marketplace trends in 2023. Um, he'll be talking for about 30 minutes or so, um, and then we'll be doing a Q&A at the end. I appreciate some of you submitted some questions, so thank you for doing that. And we'll go through as many as we can. Um, and of course, any live if we have the time, um, but appreciate we have only got this hour slot. So. Today's presenter 
Uh, welcome, Charlie. Um, I'm just going to do a mini intro before I hand over to you. So Charlie is Head of Labour Market Intelligence at JISC. Um, so I'm really pleased to welcome you today, Charlie. Um, so that is enough from me. Um, so over to you, Charlie, um, and we'll look forward to seeing um, what you've got for us today. Thanks, Katie. Um, OK, so what I'm going to try and tell you, tell you all about is everything about the current state of the labour market in half an hour. So that should be good fun. Are we all ready for that? I think we are, aren't we? Yeah, let's do that. Um, just a very brief, very, very brief note about who I am and what a JISC is. Um, JISC is the big sector body that supports higher education and also FE. Um, and my role within that is basically I'm in charge of all the labour market insight. Um, I'm actually one of the UK's longest, most experienced labour market analysts mostly by process of attrition. Most of the people have dropped out and I've just kept on going. Um, but I've been doing this for quite a long time, um, 20 years or so. Uh, so some of you may have come across me, some of you may not. Um, but I specialise in uh, graduates, uh, postgraduates um, and um, and that sort of thing. But anyway, uh, without any further ado, I will go on. We'll talk about my, or do, I'll show my presentation off. Um, don't worry about taking notes and so forth, there is, there is a recording and also you can have all the slides later. So I'm going to talk about what graduates do and I'm going to frame it around graduate outcomes data to an extent, but then we'll we'll move off into some, some much more recent data. But the reason why I'm going to talk about graduate outcomes data here is partly because it's the um, most complete census we have of graduate outcomes, but also because it helps frame discussion of what's going to happen, or, or, or uh, what we'll have a likely to see 2023 pan out um, and the recessionary context in which we're in. So if we look at graduates from 2019-20, which is the most recent data that we have for graduates, um, these graduates graduated during the pandemic. Um, pandemic might seem a long way away to, to, for many of us, or it might seem very present, um, but these, these graduates graduated during the pandemic, but they were surveyed 15 months later. Um, and I'll give you a timeline to explain how the pandemic um, affected recruitment um, and how it continues to affect recruitment in the labour market shortly. Um, but the upshot is their outcomes are not very dissimilar to people who graduated outside the pandemic. They're surprising. They are surprisingly good um, if, if you've not been immersed in these areas. So most graduates got jobs. That full time employment figure of 56.6% needs to be added to the employment and further study figure at 10.9 because all those people in employment and further study um, are working full time and also taking a qualification, usually a professional qualification. So all, all your accountants taking their accountancy exams or people taking CIM or um, legal people and so on and so forth um, are all in that group. I had one question on what proportion of graduates took master's degrees. They are in that 9.3%, but they're also in the 10.9%. And in fact, the proportion of graduates as a whole in this cohort who took master's qualifications was 12.2%. It's a little bit up um, on historic trend. I actually expect it to be a little bit higher this year as well, because generally um, postgraduates engagement and enrollment is what we call counter cyclical. So as the economy drops, more people going to postgraduate study. Sometimes it's a good good idea. So there are good times to take that approach on postgrad study. So for example, during COVID, it was an excellent time to skip out of the out of, out of the difficult labour market and take a postgraduate qualification because a year later the labour market recovered. About the worst time to take a master's qualification is at the start of a recession. Because usually if you take a if you take a master if you if you look at the market and think oh it's, it's turning down we're going into a recession and take a master's qualification usually when you graduate the labor market's worse the best time to take a master's qualification is at the end of a recession so there's a judgment period now the question is is the labor market in 2024 going to be worse than the labor market in 2023 um, and so is it a wise idea to take a master's qualification this year um, to recruit to to graduate next year. It's difficult to say, and I'll explain why um, shortly, because this is not normal. We are not in normal circumstances for a labour market. So what did graduates actually do? Well, the large majority were employed. Small number were working unpaid or voluntary. Um, unpaid internships, they still exist, but they're not really a, a serious issue 
these days, thank goodness. I mean, they are basically illegal for a start, um, but also um, when we're thinking of graduates paying working unpaid, now the largest group of unpaid graduates are working for religious organisations and they get quite cross when they're being told they're being exploited. Um, so we have to be quite careful about the language we use. About 20% were in further study, as I say, just over 60% of that's 20%, so about 12% of graduates in a whole, as a whole, were taking masters. The next largest group are taking PGCEs, but for those of us working in the teaching space, uh, it's not enough. Um, and then PhD is the most is the next most qual common qualification. Um, in this cohort, 5.8% were unemployed at the time of the survey, but only 4% of the cohort were unemployed and did not have something lined up within a month. So we do have to understand that quite a lot of people who say they're unemployed during these surveys actually already have something um, lined up to go into. So this is similar to the figures for a normal year. The graduate labour, the graduate labour market recovered very rapidly from COVID. Um, and, and to cut a long story short, again, and we'll go into the reason. The main reason is because of hybrid working being effective and also because we developed a vaccine very rapidly. Andrew Bridgen, MP, or is he still an MP now? I think he's still an MP, he's not a Conservative MP anymore. Um, it's just been suspended, just in case anybody uh, for spreading vaccine misinformation. Um, anyway, um, if we take a look at the jobs that graduates did, health is the most important. Health is always the most important. The most common job for graduates has been for many years. In fact, since the 60s, uh, has been nursing. So, um, and it, but we are sufficiently short of nurses that it would take now three entire graduating cohorts. We are short three whole graduating cohorts. So we could do with tripling or quadrupling the number of nurses we we um, we graduate in a given year. Um, and, and basically making somewhere in the region of half of all graduates nurses in order to, to in order to fill the back in order to fill the hole in the NHS and that would need to be and that elevated number would need to be um, kept up throughout the whole process. It's worth also stressing actually um, that although a lot of the focus is on the NHS, of course, um, the private sector doesn't train nurses itself um, and and also draws into um, the pool of qualified nurses so actually on the quiet there are significant shortages there as well um, that number went up not just nurses uh, health professionals of all kinds um, but we're still not training enough health professionals of any kind we are literally short of every single health profession you could possibly think of um, and, and um, it's a worsening issue there are some areas that have been particularly exacerbated since COVID began, things like radiologists, sorry, radiographers. So I've got, we've got to be careful here. Radiographers are the people who operate the big machinery, big machines that take pictures of your bones and stuff, MRIs and that kind of thing. Um, and radiologists are people who deal with radioisotopes for things like cancer treatment. We're also short of them, not quite as short as we are of radiographers. Um, we're very, very short of occupational therapists, um, particularly so since COVID because they're important in um, therapy for people who suffered serious COVID injury or who have who have long COVID and, and we have nowhere near enough and the occupational therapy um, shortages are often quite regionally based rather than nationally as well which makes things even more awkward. Um, next most common jobs for graduates are in the business HR and finance area again this is a uh, part of the workforce that's become extremely hybridised. So across the economy, around three quarters of all people working in that group are currently working in a hybrid way and have been doing so since COVID. And we can assume that the majority of people um, and graduates in that area will continue to work in a hybrid way in future. Um, we saw a modest increase in the proportion of graduates in non-graduate occupations, which are those pale ones in the final quarter of the of the pie there, the clerical, secretarial, administrative, child care, care, skilled trades, retail, waiting, mostly in the clerical, secretarial and administrative roles, which didn't suffer too badly from COVID and also went to hybrid quite easily. But actually this came down from the previous year, still really slightly ahead of trend. Um, we'll see what happens this year. I don't necessarily expect it to go up, because a lot of these areas are those most vulnerable to the recession that we have on. The other thing that's were, um, that I, I'd like to draw attention to is the fact that the arts, design and media section is down um, because that area has suffered long term impacts from COVID, large, large amount of small business, large amount of discretional spending, 
needs a lot of in-person spending. So that sector suffered quite badly. Um, and it's probably going to get hit over the next year and a half or so. So what graduate, graduate jobs did graduates do? The majority were in what we call professional level employment. Now, some of you might have a um, questions about what professional level employment means. Um, there are only a handful of people in the country who deal with that kind of thing. There's a small group at the Office of National Statistics um, who decide what a professional level job is. Um, and I'm the HE person on that on that on that um, uh, on that group. So um, who decides what a professional level job is? I do, um, partly, uh, although mostly I, I argue that X, Y, Z should be professional level and then get chatted down. But um, there's only a small number of people who make those make those judgments, but I'm one of them. But we've got um, about a quarter of jobs were below professional level employment. They won't be there forever. Uh, most of them, some of them might be, most of them won't. We know that long term trend between 10 to 12 percent of graduates in any given cohort long term trend to being in jobs below professional level employment. They're usually in office jobs. Um, which for technical reasons or childcare or health roles, um, so healthcare assistants, social care assistants, paramedics, that kind of thing, which are not considered graduate level jobs. Um, but nevertheless, most of the graduates in those roles um, say that they are meeting career goals and are satisfied. What's interesting about this particular cohort is similar to the co previous cohort is a lot seem to have voluntarily entered key worker, voluntarily entered key worker roles. One interesting facet we saw from, um, or one interesting trend we saw in, in COVID year, in 2020, was a lot of new graduates went into social care roles, particularly in adult care. Obviously, it was widely publicised that um, we were very, we were critically short of people in those jobs, um, and they were vital in in the fight against COVID and in the in, and to help particularly help the vulnerable uh, elderly population. And it seems like a lot of graduates went into those jobs, and they seem to do so voluntarily. Quite saw quite a lot of people with very good qualifications going into those roles. So that's interesting. Um, it is generally felt, although those uh, generally generally felt at the um, at the official level, the DFE and OFS and so forth, that we shouldn't really be slating universities for doing that or, or for their graduates going into non-graduate jobs that were vital to the UK at the time. Um, so it'll be interesting to see what what happens in future when we when we look at roles like that. But the top five most common jobs at professional level are fairly straightforward: nursing, IT, marketing, primary teaching, and medicine. Uh, they've not changed for quite a long time. Some of you might raise the, the odd eyebrow at marketing being in there. To be honest, it's partly because marketing is drawn phenomenally widely. Um, but um, it is in there as one of the most common jobs for graduates. The other thing to bear in mind is that internationally, we're really, really good at it. Uh, internationally, the UK is exceptionally good at digital marketing. Um, and so um, it is partly because we've got an international strength. And uh, uh, people from outside the UK come to the UK to recruit marketing professionals because we're really good. So what actually happened during the pandemic? Um, I apologise for anybody I'm for whom I'm dredging up bad memories, but let's go through the timeline because it's important to understand what happened in order to understand what's happening now. So at the outset of the pandemic, which is now nearly three years ago, three years ago, we, we knew by January 2020 that something was badly amiss in China. Um, and in fact, it was late January, early February that cases started showing up in the UK. I remember mid-February, there was a big conference in London that people started testing positive at. Um, and I remember because I'd been at a similar conference not too far away um, on the same day. Um, but I do remember a couple of MPs having to isolate because they um, they'd been at this big this big um, management conference at Earl, in Earl's Court in mid-February. But it was early March when lockdown started. It was clear that things were going badly wrong. And right at that point, um, the whole UK economy crashed closed in two weeks. Um, although actually what happened is most businesses like ours, most professional services businesses, most IT businesses, most office based businesses um, went straight to a hybrid working mode. Well, straight to a working at home mode. A business cut all of their extraneous or what they what they considered extraneous spending. Now, most businesses had already spent the money on their graduate recruitment schemes by that point. But because of the nature of the cycle, 
and, and the nature of the budgeting cycle, quite a lot had not actually spent the budget for things like work experience and apprenticeships. So what happened was graduate recruitment tended to go ahead sort of as normal, um, with obviously caveats, particularly for big businesses, but all work experience and apprenticeship schemes closed pretty much all of them, pretty much all, all everything. Few suspended all graduate recruitment because they knew it was going to be time bound and you're recruiting for the long term. So that's really important to bear in mind when we're talking about the timeline here. So we shut down um, in March. And businesses were bracing for absolute apocalypse of uh, economic apocalypse. We all were. We we're all waiting for it all to go hideously wrong, um, but it didn't. Hybrid working or, or remote working turned out to be a lot more effective. The untested systems turned out to work. And um, by summer, I was having conversations with employers where they were whispering to me, actually, this isn't going as badly as I feared. Um, we might have under recruited, actually. All our clients are still there. What are we going to do? Also, the furlough scheme kicked in. And again, it's, it's important to remember that when the furlough scheme was instituted, it was only supposed to last three months, June to September 2020. So September 2020, 2020 there was expected to be and widely publicised that we were expected to see huge scale unemployment. So a lot of businesses who realised already that their business was carrying on as usual were thinking, well, we'll, 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 we'll hold fire. It'll be really easy to recruit in the autumn. But then the furlough scheme was extended and it wasn't really recruit, easy to recruit in, in autumn. And remote working meant that 20, uh, recruitment of 2021 was clearly going to be much closer to normal. A vaccine was starting to develop. Um, we were looking at 2021 being more normal. In spring 2021, businesses started to quietly report labour shortages in uh, through organisations like the Recruitment and Employment Confederation, Chambers of Commerce. And then in May 2021, all restrictions were lifted and recruitment went absolutely bonkers. Everybody tried to recruit at once. Um, and um, they were all trying to recruit for the now, but they were all trying to backfill vacancies that they hadn't recruited for over the previous year. And it was absolute lunacy. Um, widespread labour shortage across multiple sectors. Um, and so we got to the point at the end of late 2021 in the situation that we're in now, um, we had a much stronger labour market than pre-pandemic. Hybrid working was widespread and embedded. So that leads us to where we are right now. These, these figures come from last week, um, come from the Office of National Statistics last week. So at the moment, um, an absolutely crucial and slightly under-remarked point that happened to the UK last Easter was for the first time since records began, we had more job vacancies than employed people in the UK, and that has now become the status quo. So we have more vacancies than we have spare labour. And we have had that for nearly a year, and it's quite possible that will continue for the time being. So in 2022, the largest rises in employment in the UK were the human health and social work sector, um, over 216,000. Professional scientific and technical activities, 141,000. IT, 135,000. Those are all largely and almost solely graduate recruiters. And in fact, the UK added enough jobs at graduate level in the UK to accommodate every single graduate who graduated last year. Every single graduate, including all the graduates who go travelling, all the graduates who go and take further study. And this is just new jobs created. That is before we even touch the sides of all the people who um, retire and need to be replaced or go off sick or just go off and do something else. And that's just from those three sectors. That's before we even talk about engineering or we talk about education um, or we, you know, we talk about all those areas that also are short of graduates. So bluntly, at the moment, we've widespread shortage of graduates across multiple, multiple sectors. Our long-standing recruitment difficulties do not look likely to be significantly eased at present. Over half of all businesses in the health and social work sector reported a shortage of workers in the late 2022, no, mostly graduates. That's all, half, not just the NHS, but every single business. And at the moment, around 38% of all businesses say they simply don't have enough staff across the whole UK. But we have got a recession. Chambers and REC have been um, very diligent. Actually, Chambers just produced a new report, but the figures are reasonably similar. 
So we've seen a slowing down of, the, of, of, uh, of online job ads, but the, the agencies are still reporting that demand for staff is growing. It's just slowed down the growth. So we've still got an increased demand for staff from a, a diminishing talent pool. Um, firms expect turnover to increase, but they also expect costs to increase. So we're seeing reduced profitability and reduced investment. So we do expect, particularly in SMEs, to see recruitment slow down a bit. But we are sti still seeing job ads at a healthy level in many job categories in many industries. Just to look at SMEs, they have been taking a declining share of the graduate labour market. So about a quarter of graduates from 2020 started working in SME. It was a little bit up on the previous year. But the simple issue appears to be as a, a mixture of unfavourable business conditions, particularly from COVID, but also um, many SMEs are targeting graduates in shortage areas in things like business services, sales, tech, IT, uh, marketing, uh, PR, and those kind of areas. And they're being systematically outcompeted for talent by larger businesses. And we all um, and we know and we, we hear and we can see at the moment that it's a very difficult market for SMEs in terms of attracting talent and, and retaining people like experienced project managers, um, anybody with techie or coding skills or sales skills are being targeted by big businesses and, and having money thrown at them. Um, and we can see that's a problem in SME. It's also a problem in public sector, public sector employers right now um, because of that talent shortage. So as I say, we've got a recession on. What happened in the last recession? Well, the graduate labour market was the least affected bit. Very likely to be the case this time. When I say, oh, and if I say something is very likely, I'm, I'm Mr. Hedgy Hedgy. When I say it's very likely, I mean, I think I'm pretty sure this is what is going to happen. So I, th I can't really conceive of situations where the graduate labour market is, is worse affected than the non-graduate labour market. We haven't gone into a recession with a labour market with a, with a labour shortage in the in any of our lifetimes. That's simply not happened. So we are working without maps. So what would normally happen is by now, by this point in the cycle, we'd see significant cutbacks in recruitment for graduates. We'd see unemployment for graduates rising. Um, we'd see the recruitment schemes, work experience and training schemes all being cut back quite substantially. That hasn't happened. There's some cutbacks in training and work experience, um, but the rest of it hasn't really happened. A thing to look out for is if we start to see graduates in things like engineering um, losing their jobs or, or recruitment schemes being cut back, they're vulnerable to cuts in large infrastructure spend. Um, but again, that doesn't appear to be happening. So this recession is not acting like normal, normal in inverted commas, recessions do for the graduate labour market. And it's because of that shortage of graduates. So this time, because we've got labour shortage in many professional areas, we're not expecting to see job losses um, in, in to quite such a degree or such a severe hiring reduction. We're not, we are seeing reduced investment, but it'll be mostly training, possibly apprenticeships and work experience again. Businesses do have the excuse that in a hybrid environment, they are still finding, cracking the nut of how to offer high quality apprenticeships and, or work experience in hybridised workplaces. Um, and, and I suspect that will be the cover for many of them reducing investment in those areas. But in difficult talent in difficult talent acquisition circumstances, you will see work experience as a way to attract talent. And there is that tension between work experiences and investment expense that can be cut when revenue is down, but also as a way of improving recruitment and, uh, and, and retention. And I think that will be an interesting dynamic to watch play out in businesses. I suspect the more dynamic forward thinking businesses, perhaps the ones with a slightly higher appetite for risk as well, maybe will invest in work experience rather than cut it back because it is a very good way of getting talent in, onboarding it um, and retaining it in a difficult environment, particularly for SMEs. So I'm going to finish up with my five predictions. We're going to be in this recession all year and probably into 2024. But the labour shortage will remain a feature. That's the weird thing. The 
we're probably going to be expecting waiting for the shoot or at least graduate labour shortage remain a feature. I am very concerned about the hospitality sector in particular um, and any sector really that requires that, that relies on consumer spending because we are all going to see real way real terms wage cuts over 2024 2023 we're all going to see disposable income fall so any sector that requires on the requires disposable income spend is likely to get hit but graduates tend not to work in those sectors businesses will remain committed to edi and i'll explain why in a minute so equality diversity and inclusion will remain important and also we'll see more businesses doing what Santander did last week and saying we're dropping the 2-1 as an entry requirement. Um, I, I think we'll see more of that happening. And don't forget, again, non-graduates will be worse than graduates. The EDI question is particularly interesting. It's important in order to ensure that you're getting a proper supply of talent, particularly in a difficult jobs market. There's no point turning down perfectly good um, tech, techies when you are uh, you know, perfectly good coders and programmers. Um, because they've not been to Russell Group universities, for example, or, um, you know, or, or failing to diversify your workforce when your client, when your, when your workforce doesn't look like your client base. But more importantly, as indeed Glassdoor found out um, in their survey just before Christmas, which is well worth reading, um, the large majority of young workers say they'll consider turning down a job offer or leaving a company if they don't think that their manager support. So it's not enough to have an EDI policy now, you've actually got to implement it because your younger staff in particular are watching. 72% of workers will will consider leaving a company that is not actively engaged in equality, diversity and inclusion initiatives. Um, around 65% um, will consider leaving a company that has gender imbalances at senior level. Um, so, you know, these things, it is not enough for you to talk the talk, you've got to walk the walk here. And again, and, and, and similarly with that, with the 2-1 as an entry requirement, I think there's a, a widespread feeling that maybe that's not the best metric to work out potential these days. Um, and so we're seeing a lot of people moving, um, uh, not worrying so much about that. So I'm going to leave that there now. I'm going to um, take the share off. You can all look at my beautiful, beautiful face my cupboard um there we go um and what i'll do is i will go through the questions that have been asked if anybody has any other questions um uh jane i'll, I'll what i'll do is i'll stick you yeah i'll i'll put a uh, i'll put a link to that um i'll just just put a link to the report in the chat jane coombs you wanted to know which report that was um okie dokie um what I'm going to do, what I'll do is I'll go through the questions. Um, so um, are um, any insight on how cost of living is impacting on student graduate expectations on assessments and decisions to pursue, pursue opportunities? It's a really, really good question. Yes, students are concerned about everybody's concerned about cost of living. Um, but we also know that many assessment um, uh, opportunities seem to work. Pretty well in a virtual and hybrid way. And I think virtual hybrid assessment centres will become more popular with both employers and with potential applicants. Um, what the whole um, hybrid experience means, it democratises opportunity for students, particularly those who are concerned about moving to big cities. And it's not just London these days. I'm based in Manchester, which is a phenomenally city, uh, which is a very, very expensive city to work in, to live and work in. Um, and hybrid hybrid working does mean that if you offer a job in London, but say you only have to attend once or twice a week or a couple of times a month and you can work from home, that massively broadens your potential applicant pool out. One of the dirty secrets for London is that the majority of people who work in London are originally from London. Um, and, and, so, and so the idea that London is this big melting pot is both true and also false. So loads of people do move to London, but most people who move to London are from close by. Um, most people from the north of England don't work in London and never will. So if you're based in London and have a London based office, you'll mostly get people from London with a London perspective. And although there's a, that, that, that hits some diversity measures, it doesn't hit some others. Are people finding applicant numbers down for apprenticeships, interns and grads? I couldn't tell you um, personally if applicant numbers are down. The Institute of Student Employers 
um, have been equivocal about that because they seem fundamentally one of the one, one of the issues is that applicant behaviour does seem to have changed a little bit since COVID. Um, we're not quite sure whether it's in, whether it whether it's embedded or whether it's um, whether it's temporary. So I think we'll have to reserve judgment on whether some of these trends, particularly in applicant behaviour, are long term or whether they are a blip. But we're monitoring monitoring this sort of question very very closely and trying to work out basically what the hell's going through the mind of applicants and candidates so that we can we can plan for the future because at the moment this sort of thing is quite difficult to predict um we do know that apprenticeship numbers are down though but that may simply be because the apprenticeship opportunities are also down so there's a hand in glove thing going on there um are you seeing any dramatic change in terms of the types and numbers of graduate vacancies? Not really, actually. In fact, surprisingly little. Um, as I say, the major changes are so there are some interesting trends. So some engineering and tech recruiters um, have withdrawn from recruiting, even though they have unfilled vacancies, simply because there's such a long term shortage of engineers and coders that some businesses have just basically thrown up their hands and said, you know, we had our, we've had vacancies open for 12, 18 months and, and simply not getting enough candidates. So we're closing those. So the true level of demand in those sectors is probably currently underestimated. Um, we haven't, uh, and, and the other the other area where there's been a bit of a change is, of course, as I say, the arts, where um, the SME infrastructure and and also simple demand has been hit quite hard by COVID, and and, and by a more house uh, more home based workforce. And again, we, it's difficult to see how um, what the trends are for long term because the thing with the arts sector is they are phenomenally innovative. So um, they'll find a way. They'll they'll find a way, but we just don't know what shape it is yet. So those are the current trends. As as the as the year goes on, we may see some movement, but don't expect it to be very profound because of this shortage. Um, can we expect to see employers lower the number of graduates, cancellation of graduate programs? I do think we'll see some cutbacks, but not massively. Um, what can students do to make themselves recession-proof? Well, the most important thing that they can do is um, not view this as a typical recession and not give up straight away and not say there's going to be no jobs this summer there's a recession on the place is in a state so just don't give up straight away keep plugging away keep emphasizing the experiences you've had i know fewer have been able to get work experience and that has been a, a problem and a concern for many um but we've also got to bear in mind that the experiences that that students have had um during pandemic have been unique um, and, and the ways that they've coped and the ways that they formed bonds and the ways that they've supported one another and, and the things that they've done to simply navigate the last two or three years and the resilience they've shown are, are benefits of businesses who've also had to navigate those new ways of working, being and thinking um, uh, in, in the same way. And, that, and, and those insights can be very useful. Um, Ismail and Sarah, I, I'm going to go through the questions I had submitted, but I will answer those two questions, particularly one about science, because for those of you who don't know, I'm originally a scientist by trade. So Sarah Lemass's question about how the science labour market is particularly interesting um, to me. And um, so I'll make sure I answer that. Um, how can companies prioritise the importance of joining and attending career fairs? Um, uh, basically, uh, if you don't, if you're not in it, you don't win it. And career fairs are a brilliant way to make contacts with employers um, and a really good way to be seen, a really good way to get information and a really good way to think about the options that are available to you. And stress to graduates, stress to students that the options available to them are far, far wider, I think, than they're considered. And a careers fair can help them understand the sheer range of things that, that are available to them. Now, actually, for those of us who've worked in careers for a long time, we know that that can actually paradoxically be a bit of a trap. And cause a bit of choice paralysis amongst some grad, some students. So do do that being do do that carefully. Um, actually, I'm going to answer. I'm, I'm going to I'm going to book the trend and I'll answer Charles Statham's question about 
two year post-study work visa? Because I get that question a lot and the answer is very simple. The honest answer is we don't know yet. Um, everybody wants to know if a two year post-study work visa is working. We don't know yet. Um, uh, and Claire's asking, are we seeing fewer less graduates entering uni due to cost of living challenges? And again, it's a very simple answer. No, we're not. Um, graduate uh, enthusiasm for university is still high. Uh, so how's the graduate immigration impact of the jobs market? As I say, we don't know. How can we best support and advise our students this spring, summer? What advice will you be giving now to your younger student self in the current economic climate? I made a load of very, I graduated in a recession and made pretty much all the worst choices you could make. I gave up, for example. Um, don't give up. There are jobs out there. Most graduates will get jobs this year. It's fundamentally the uh, the advice I will give. Don't give up um, and uh, and be flexible and be thoughtful um, uh, about the kind of jobs that you can do, because most people with most qualifications can enter a much wider range of roles than they think they can. Um, because most graduate jobs are subject blind. So it doesn't matter whether you've studied fine arts and physics, there's suites of experiences and knowledges and skills that you've gained from your university study that employers are looking for. So don't be too concerned that because there's been a downturn in the particular sector that your subject de uh, describes, there are no jobs for you. There are loads of jobs you might just have to think about different sectors. The other piece of advice I would say is boot out all talk of your dream job. You, If you're graduating this year, if you're a 21 year old graduating this year, you've got a 45 year career ahead of you. Um, and statistically speaking, and, and in most realistic terms, most of you will not settle down into your final career until your 30s. Um, go out into the job market in your 20s, Make mistakes is a great time to make. You're bound to make career mistakes sometime. And the best time to make them is when you're 21, not when you're 41. Um, and um, go out and, and, and do, do, uh, earn yourself a living. You may find that jobs that you were not expecting, um, that you were not expecting would work for you. That's what happened to me, what happens to a lot of people. Um, and just try as much try as much as you can. Um, Joe, Joanna Brown asks, can you give up to date percentage on the number of jobs that are subject blind? No, we can only go on estimates, but the current estimate is about 65 to 70%. Um, this, this, this is something that Stephen Isherwood and I, and Stephen Isherwood at the Institute of Student Employers, and I constantly debate. Um, it's difficult because there's no longer a definitive centralised source of graduate employment vacancies. But it's certainly a majority, it's probably somewhere around those areas. Um, what can university staff do to support our graduates? Um, help them articulate their skills effectively is the honest answer. Um, what do they how what do they envisage challenges are for 2023? Um, it's difficult to say, um, and I, I try not to do I try not to be political in this kind of thing because I have to be neutral. But a lot of the issues that we're in now is because the government made some really, really foolish mistakes, frankly, in 2022. So fundamentally, at the moment, we seem to have a relatively steady course, but there's always the possibility that the government might do something good, like the furlough scheme, which worked really well, or something daft because um, we're just a bit concerned about the judgment of the people who are running it right now. Um, if things go as they are as they are now, we're probably going to see a steady but slow deterioration of the graduate labour market. It may start to pick up towards the end of 2023, but it's not likely to reach the sort of levels that we expect to see during the recession. Um, so it's probably going to I mean, and, and if you're a graduate in many areas of shortage, it's probably going to be still reasonably fine. It's more people going into generalist roles or working for SMEs or outside of the big cities who who may struggle a little bit more. So I think that's the those are the things that we want to um, we want to consider. Um, what factors are important to students in a graduate employer? That's a really interesting question. I'll be honest and say I could do a whole session on this, um, but at the moment um, we are seeing an increase because of cost of living increases. The important thing, 
the important thing to bear in mind, and I'm going to try and articulate this as quickly as possible because I appreciate we've got a relatively short time and quite a lot of questions, and I want to make sure I answer all of them. Most people and students know no exception when they're looking at a job, have a figure in their heads for how much they think they're worth. And at that point, they go in salary is kind of the overriding factor. Well, I'm an idea of the sort of job they want to do, but most of them are saying in their heads, I want a job paying 22K. So they'll not consider anything that play, pays below that. I'm just picking 22K, that's the average graduate salary right now. Um, however, once you've met that criteria, other things become far more important. So it, it becomes all about culture and workplace and values. It's why EDI is so important to younger employees. It's why workplace and 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 um, and, and those are the things that will retain your staff. So you know, a, a an employer that visibly treats its uh, an employer that, that that visibly treats its staff well and invests in training and has good development opportunities and clearly is a high morale workforce, but which pays £500 less than a competitor, will get more applicants as long as it meets that notional idea of value in the market. So it's a little bit complicated, but genuine, generally that is the case. And for young, young people and young graduates who are, frankly, and we, we have to bear in mind, they are by and large, quite socially liberal. They have quite a strong set of values around equality, diversity, inclusion, fairness, and all of that kind of thing. And your company needs to walk the walk and it needs to talk the talk. It needs to show that they're doing it. They need to show that it's a, a, a happy workplace. But also bear in mind that these are people, you know, they are, they have a strong set of values. They have a they're looking for specific company cultures, but they also want to get in, get on in their careers. So you do need to demonstrate there are opportunities for people who work well. So those are the kind of things that graduates are looking, students and graduates are looking for an employer. An employer, employer, you will retain people if you meet if you match their values, and you will retain people if you give them a good workplace in which to work that doesn't mean you know having a wacky workplace with you know pool tables and bean bags and hey we're all great mates here it means allowing a supportive workplace where people can people feel included and they feel they're doing doing work for a business that that thinks the way that they do about the issues that matter to them so that that in a nutshell is what we're is what we're looking at and the data is really really strong i'm not a big advocate of all this generation X, generation Y theory and all of that kind of stuff. But you can see that particularly younger workers have a, a discrete set of values. You know, if you if you're not if your business doesn't take environmental issues seriously, for example, congratulations, you've just alienated probably the majority of your potential workforce. Um, if you don't take quality diversion and inclusion, as you say, you are basically cutting out about two thirds of your potential workforce. Um, you've got to you've got to take these things seriously these days. Um, it is really important. Um, what has been the impact of Brexit to the student population? Uh, we've only got 10 minutes. Sorry. <laughs> it's difficult to overstate the impact of Brexit. To be, well, no, it's not actually. People overstate the impact of Brexit every day. Um, but it has. But much of the labour shortage that we are experiencing right now has Brexit as a as a Brexit route, because not only is it harder for international, but it's not actually a lot harder for skilled international workers to come here. But our attractiveness as an employer, an international destination has dropped substantially, very substantially. And, and I don't think we're going to have to come to terms with that. It's probably a long term thing. We are no longer a destination of choice for many able international internationalized workers fundamentally. And there's a bunch of reasons for it. There was a very good report. I suddenly can't remember who wrote it. Um, but there was a very good international business report that came out towards the end of last year that looked um, that had us dropping down every favorability ranking you could think of because fundamentally and without again without being too the external view is uh, from and bear in mind that the sort of workers we're trying to in, in, uh, recruit as international workers 
are generally very well educated, they're very well read, they're cosmopolitan, um, then they view the UK as a xenophobic and poorly run country at the moment. And those opinions are reinforced in international press as well. So it's important, just for example, um, the Indian press have basically been mocking the UK government for years now, partly to cover their own issues, but partly because they find us amusing. Um, and, and we have to acknowledge that educated staff don't see the UK as a, a great bet to put down roots right now. That's just the up and down of it, and we just have to come to terms with it. It's simply not just so it, it won't just be a case of making immigration easier. We've got to make people want to come here again. And that's going to be a much different, more difficult and longer term trend. Um, what's the trend in students opting for school leaver opportunities versus higher education? The problem is those school leaver opportunities have been hit harder by COVID and the likely to be hit harder by the recession. Um, so in terms of so one thing that is very little commented but needs to be we need to be candid about that school leaver opportunities as they're called in most sectors are moving to roles that are shrinking so when you're looking at skilled trades for example the skilled trades workforce the skilled trades section of the economy has fallen steadily since 2020 since 2010 and the simple number of jobs in those sectors is falling. Now they do need new entrants because the workforce is old, is aging. But the simple fact is that those school leaver opportunities um, are largely, or the, the decent paid ones with um, opportunities are, to put it bluntly, getting automated away. There was a slight reversal of trend during COVID, particularly for the office jobs. Because it turned out they could be relatively easily hybridised. But by and large, what really worries me about a lot of these school leaver opportunities and a lot of the apprenticeship opportunities is they are going into roles that are very vulnerable to automation over the next 30 years. Really worried. There are some graduate roles that are vulnerable to automation, but most are not. And automation is expected to increase demand for graduates absent anything else by about 10%. Ned, they're government's own figures. So it does worry me about that. But at the moment, we're not seeing much of a change in those opportunities. Higher education, it, it, it's remaining about steady. So about 45% of 18-year-olds go to university at the moment. Not the majority. University is still a minority sport. But about 18%, about 45% of 18-year-olds go to university right now. Um, so let's take a look. What's your view on skills based hiring? That's a really good question. And again, um, not we've probably not got enough time to really go into the ins and outs of this. You've got to do it right is the first thing we skills based hiring is a little more popular in the US and there are structural reasons why that's why it's popular in the US. And that's because they've actually got an agreed language on skills in America because they spent 20 years developing one. Um, at very great expense. So when people say, um, so, so they actually have a relatively standardised set of job descriptions with a relatively standardised set of skills demands. So in America, if you ask for a project manager, there is a website called ONET that you can look up what skills a project manager is supposed to have. You try doing that here <laughs> and imagining what what the huge gamut of things that um, we we call project managers, everything from market, people in marketing to really, really IT heavy, print to trained scrum specialists. And so skills based hiring in the UK is, is harder because we don't have that unified language. Now, as you can tell from the technical explanation, there are experts of whom I'm one who are looking at this, but it is going to be a long term. It's going to be a long term piece of work. And at the moment, the biggest problem with that skills based hiring system is when you say we want problem solving, it does mean different things to different people. 
And all of those interpretations are valid because nobody's ever really defined what that means. And we don't have we don't have a system like the Americans have where you then break problem solving down into chunks and have little bits that say, and this is what problem solving actually involves. Exactly, Sarah. Good skills. ONET is brilliant. And it's the problem for us is ONET is partly translate, translatable to the UK, not completely. Yeah, so that's the issue, Joanna. We could, but it falls down in a lot of areas. One of the big issues for us, for example, is that the US has quite a large um, master's base, uh, master's level jobs market that we don't have. Um, and ONET does include qualification requirements, but also simply because the US, US economy is actually, the US workforce is actually, when it comes down to it, a bit too different to ours. It's more dispersed, it's more urban. They have a far larger primary sector than we do. And, and proportionally, in terms of importance to the economy, a much lower business services sector. So they just do things differently. They're weird. They don't talk proper English. Um, sorry, uh, sorry to any Americans. I apologise, but I'm right. Um, no, but they, but it's sort of translatable, but not completely. So it's a really interesting set of questions, as you can get, as you can tell from the discussion. It's something that I'm actively engaging with, but it's. Um, it's 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 difficult. I'm going to answer one more question from the list and then go on to Q&A because I appreciate we've only got four minutes left. So while organisations are claiming to focus on more transferable soft skills and marginalised on degree classifications, do you think recruitment processes need to be further adjusted to attract desired applicants and ensure they have every chance to best present themselves? Well, I think that's a slightly leading question, um, but I think we've always got room to improve um, recruitment processes. As long as there is that candidate attrition, and as long as we're not always recruiting the best people, there are room. To, there is room to look at the way that we we hire. Um, but diversifying out the base from which we draw means that you've got a more, you've got a greater chance of getting a wider range of views and perspectives. Um, and so I would say that making it easier and, and fundamentally, in general. With the exception, there are some situations where it's not necessarily the case, but in general, making it easier for candidates to view you as a as a, a reasonable option. I mean, you, we don't want we don't all want to be inundated with even more basically mass emailed CVs from people who are just sending their CVs off to every single occupation. But we do want more carefully tailored applications from everybody. Yeah, Joanne, you're right. Grads do find the recruitment process onerous as too long. And I think one thing we have to bear in mind that in many sectors, they do have the upper hand. We don't have enough graduates of, of the quality that we need in a lot of sectors. And businesses really do have to get to grips with that. We've got to make it easier for them to apply. We've got to make them want to, not want to work for us, but want to go through all the hoops that we expect them to jump through. I think sometimes businesses do need to remember that it's a two-way thing. And we've got to make them want to choose us as well. Right, and finally, as promised, I'm going to answer those two questions um, from Ismail and from Sarah. Oh, Sarah's Sarah gone. Oh, no, it's Claire. Hang on. Um, so, <coughs> sorry about that. What are prospects for recent graduates in 2023 if they're looking to go into freelancing? It's a very, very good question. Self-employment got clobbered during COVID, to be quite candid. Um, and we're still trying to get to grips with the data on what exactly has happened nationally um, on self-employment and freelancing. So I will be quite honest, we don't know as much as we'd like, and I, I'm, I'm engaged in, or I'm about to start a project in 2023 that should get a much, much better view. But I'll be honest, I suspect 2023 will not be a brilliant year for graduates in those sectors. Um, <laughs> as I say, with people concerned about profitability and income and cost of living, um, it's not going to be it's not going to be great. And um, I think we're going to have to do we're going to have to work hard to support freelancers and creatives. But the, the counter the, and the, obviously the um, the counter argument is actually recession often drives phenomenal creativity, particularly in the creative industries. So my suspicion is that what we'll see is we'll see fewer creative businesses created. But some of them will be seriously innovative and, and do things in a way that 
the rest of us will end up copying. So that's my that's that's how I, I, I see 2023. And finally, science, my old stamping ground. In actual fact, science uh, um, in the UK has had a rubbish time of it over the last 15 to 20 years. You know, coincidentally, since I left the industry, um, you know, coincidentally, since I left the industry. Um, but actually, COVID was a real shot in the arm because our science industry really stepped up. Um, and it reminded people of its importance and its skill. And the last couple of years have been a little bit better for the science industry. But the thing to bear in mind about the science industry in the UK is that at the moment it mostly recruits postgrads rather than undergrads. Undergraduate scientists and leave and science and science graduates leaving university with undergraduate qualifications tend not to go into science roles. There are lots of other roles, particularly in the finance industry, that welcome them. But if you want to go into science, you probably need a postgraduate qualification. So there we go. I'll leave it there. Thanks, Charlie. We really appreciate it. Um, I'm just going to share my screen again. So hopefully you can all see that. Um, so if you haven't already become a member of the GRN LinkedIn group, uh, we'll send you a link to join, um, but we have lots of discussion, share inside news, um, information, etc. Um, and Charlie will actually be on the GRN page for the next 24 hours. So if you have any burning questions that you didn't get to ask today, uh, Charlie, hopefully will be able to answer them. I'll, on there. I'll, I'll lurk around for ages. Yeah, mate, he'll be he'll be on there. So don't worry. <laughs> um, yes, thanks, Sarah. But Philip also Philip Schofield also started out in a brew cupboard with a gopher. Fortunately, <laughs> there might be one in here. Could be for all this stuff, but I don't think there is. <laughs> um, but no, so Charlie will be on there to answer any questions. Um, we've also recorded today's session. Um, so by all means, feel free to play it back or share with any of your colleagues um, if you feel it'll be useful. Uh, we'll be posting this, I think, on the GRN group as well. So you'll be able to see it on there. Um, so new for 2023, um, so we have um, a range of bits we're doing this year. So fresh insights like today, the great debate and leaders lunch. Um, so lots of events to join um, this year, which is really exciting. Um, and finally, just wanted to say a final thank you for all your time today. Really do appreciate it. Um, and of course, a huge thank you to Charlie. Um, you've been absolutely incredible today. So thank you so much for your insight. It's very useful. Um, so that is everything from me. Um, we will we'll, we will send around all of the links um, and everything for today's session. But that is everything from me. Um, thanks a lot, everyone. Have a good rest of your day. Thanks very much, everyone. Thanks, later. Charlie. Bye bye. Bye bye. Thank you. Bye. Thank you so much.